0: Buenos dias. Before digging into our reflection this morning and in proper Latin American fashion, I must bring you greetings. Greetings from your sisters and brothers of Casa Adobe, the intentional Christian community to which my husband James and I belong in Costa Rica. In this community, we're learning what it means to live, Day in and day out, from Monday to Sunday, from shared meals to dirty dishes, from music night to community organizing, from composting to bridging cultural differences, we're learning what it means to live as a body of followers of the servant king. Being a part of this community has also brought the stories of the New Testament to life, as reflections of the ups and downs of living together as that body in the world. I invite us today to enter one of those stories as painted in Acts 11. Hunger. There is going to be hunger, a great famine. The Spirit of God has revealed this to me, and the people in Judea are going to suffer god's revelation to agabus was very timely because truly the people of jerusalem in the late 40s after christ entered a phase of extreme need in addition to persistent food shortages double taxation to the temple and to rome and overpopulation the christian community began to feel the pressure of years of funding mission travel, extending hospitality to visitors from other churches, and supporting diaspora Jews who, upon retirement, settled back in Jerusalem. They were in dire straits, and God's Spirit brought this to the attention of people far away. Now, Agabus' call echoed within the local community of Greek believers in Antioch. They agreed that. Every family would contribute according to its possibilities, and they would send an offering to the church leaders in Judea through Barnabas and Saul so as to alleviate their need. Not an ordinary matter. Theirs was a bold step that countered normal expectations and subverted the established order. How so? What is the big deal with this offering? In order for us to understand how radical it was and why Paul talked so much about it in his letters to the churches, we have to understand the broader scene. Gospel! Hear the gospel of Augustus, savior of the world! The heralds of the empire tromped through the conquered lands announcing that good news of the growth of the emperor's domain in spite of oppressive taxation military presence and massive displacement of people groups the collective imagination of the empire was trapped by the civil religiosity of emperor worship this absolute lord supposedly divine offered meaning and coherence to all areas of life he was the supreme families, who granted security and well-being through bread and circus, justice through the Roman law, peace through an iron fist and enslaving taxes, and hope of a glorious future through powerful propaganda which determined the worldview, the values, and the entire horizon of all who submitted to it. No relationship in that society was left unmarked by the hierarchical model of imperial power. In the collegia, urban associations, the patrons were men with political prestige and economic power who offered meeting places, food for the community banquets, and money for unexpected expenses in exchange for the political loyalty of their members, their flattery, and places of honor at the table. New Testament specialists compare the early Christian communities with these urban associations. For those even within who operated in this imperial paradigm, the ecclesias offered a new opportunity for self-promotion as a new class of urban saints, as they sought to climb up the ranks. Aspiring patrons could swear nominal allegiance to the gospel make financial contributions to buy clientele, demonstrate extraordinary gifts, speak in tongues, and become part of the spiritual aristocracy of the movement. Motivated by a spirit of privilege, these leaders became accomplices in imperial oppression. The apostle Paul warned insistently against that patronage that threatened to subsume the good news of Jesus Christ into the supposed good news of the empire and filtered through all relationships. It justified patriarchy in the family. It fostered slavery. It supported military buildup. It excluded great majorities from participation in the decision processes of society. Now, any similarity with the current scene is just mere coincidence. So we must ask, in what way within this scene could the budding Christian communities live in a truly alternative way that countered the prevailing patronage model of social organization? Paul believed that the Jerusalem collection was part of the answer. He wrote and spoke about it extensively in his interaction with the churches spread across Asia Minor. For 10 years, he solicited funds among the Gentile churches around the Roman Empire. He traveled tirelessly seeking support for this famine relief venture. Now this unlikely offering sent to the mother church in Jerusalem by congregations that were distant both from the center of power of the Christian movement as well as from the imperial seat constituted a radical liturgy of prophetic reversal. A radical liturgy of prophetic reversal. Liturgy, just to clarify, refers to the political and economic service offered for the common good by the inhabitants of a city, the subjects of a ruler, or the devotees of a god. That was the usage in the time. Now this prophetic liturgy had several facets, all of them contravening the patronage paradigm of the empire. In economic terms, according to Richard Horsley, and I quote, By putting their material wealth outside the potential reach of the patron, the businessman, the speculator, or the tax collector, and giving it instead to people with whom they had no family relation, nor political connection, these assemblies demonstrated their commitment to the principle of radical sacrifice. And they centered the practice of that principle on concrete social change these Gentile Christians stepped out of the logic of accumulation and self-interest in favor of people for whom they had no official obligation. In addition, the offering was not gathered exclusively among the rich people, but among all members of the community. In this way, it constituted a leveling exercise that combated personal greed and challenged the pretensions of the patrons. Everyone had something to give. In political terms, the offering constituted an expression of communion, of active solidarity and economic sharing that was not only local but global and symbolically shifted the center of gravity from Rome and Jerusalem to the margins. This offering in sum was not a mere charitable act of solidarity, but rather a daring expression of the gospel of another kingdom, one that had been inaugurated not by armies, swords, taxation, or impositions, but by the spirit of life. About this offering, let's again hear Paul's words to the Christians in Rome, which we know as part of Romans 15. Now, for, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem and the servants of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So, after I have completed this task and I have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all, amen. Why, we have to ask, might Paul have had to beg for prayer when he was preparing to carry his offering to Jerusalem i am taking the offering to Jerusalem he says pray that it will be favorably received by the lord's people there verse 31 pray that it will be welcome by the lord's people there why would it not be welcome why would the offering not be well received? If there was famine, the people were overburdened by need, why on earth would they not receive the gift with grateful appreciation? Think about it. What might be the barriers that impeded their joyful reception of such an offering? Well, the story of the relationship between the Jerusalem community of Christ followers and these gentle newcomers obviously did not begin with the offering. Disputes and controversies had arisen early on regarding who was in and under what conditions a person could belong to the budding community. They, the original Jerusalem community, perceived themselves as entitled to dictate the standards and set the boundaries. After all, it was in Judea that the Jesus story had begun. Who better than they could express the true gospel and show what it meant to remain faithful to Jesus' teaching? They, the mother church, were logically the source from which all proper teaching would emanate. The others, the Gentile communities out there, we're naturally on the receiving end. However, the ground had begun to shift under their feet for some time. You'll recall when Peter had had to admit that God had given the same spirit to a Roman centurion as had been given to the Jewish believers when his entire pagan household had come to faith? Oh, you'll remember that when they heard that some believers, some Cyprus and Cyrene had gone to Antioch and shared the good news of Jesus with Greeks there, large numbers of non-Jews had turned to the Lord. And eventually they, those for, whom, for who for some were only second-class citizens in the new faith community, they were the first to be granted the honorific title of Christians. Christ-followers. So it's not hard to imagine how difficult it would be within a patronage paradigm for the Jerusalem church, who had sat at the heart of the new faith community, to shed her position of leadership and authority and receive from daughter churches. From giver to receiver. Quite a role reversal. Not simple for them to recognize that the same spirit that had turned fear-filled disciples into bold witnesses of the good news of God's kingdom in Jerusalem and Judea was active out there. Motivating mission, revealing truth, building up local faith communities with gifts to offer and provoking radical reversals. They were being challenged to receive from places they had considered mission fields, Macedonia and Achaia, Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, Asia, Lystra, and Corinth. As we draw to a close, allow me to sum up the significance of this Jerusalem collection, which was far more than a charitable gift. Because of its generous and sacrificial nature, it served as a leveling act that contributed to undoing local and global hierarchies, repositioning givers and receivers, untying power knots, and strengthening the interdependence between believers as part of a body that far transcended ethnic and geographic boundaries as we consider the current global scene and the place of the church within it. We, you, I, my friends at Casa Dove, our sisters and brothers from around the world, are challenged in a similar way as were those first communities of believers. Closer to home for you in this country. Perhaps the famine being experienced is not literal hunger and perhaps the current offering from the rest of the world to the church in this country will not take the shape of a monetary collection but perhaps just perhaps there are other hungers here and there are other offerings ready to be given by Christian communities that have long lived outside the Christendom model with its acritical association of faith with power. Perhaps in light of these reflections, you're asked not only to serve the people rendered vulnerable by the current social, political, and economic establishment. Perhaps you're also called to ask and to pray to what daring prophetic reversals is the spirit calling us? What sort of offerings might reposition givers and receivers in today's global church? What prides and prejudices need to be overcome so that Christians of North and Latin America, Asia, Africa, and beyond can all offer the gifts God has granted us for the well-being of the entire body? What structures and systems need to be reorganized so that we may live as prophetically reconciled and reconciling communities in the broader society? May the same spirit that revealed the need of the Jerusalem church to Agabus and move the believers in Asia Minor to give generously, inspire us today so that we may live as prophetically subversive expressions of God's reign and God's justice. And may the offerings of all God's people be well received. Now the Chinese fellowship will lead us in worship.